Well, last week, if you were with us, maybe you remember I opened with a song. Um, And today I wanted to do something a little different that I thought would lighten the moment. We're in a series entitled Making Bank. No man can serve two masters. And the whole point of this series is to help and encourage Christians to live to glorify God and to serve King Jesus with all of life's treasures. This series is looking at three relationships for us to understand life's treasure from a biblical perspective. Last week we started with money and identity and we learned that a confused understanding of our identity in Christ always creates a dreaded obligation towards giving. A dreaded obligation. That's not the way God intended for us to live our life. And so we talked about how the, uh, our focus needed to be on the key to moving from obligation to grace. In other words, how do we establish our lives in God's grace such that when we talk about money, when we talk about stewardship, when we talk about giving, it doesn't create obligation, but it actually creates greater joy. Well, the, the issue there is to understand our identity in Christ and where Christ has set us free from that guilt, from that shame and uh, guilts or sins effect upon us. And so Christ followers, we saw guard against the temptation to replace obligation for biblical stewardship that flows out of our identity in Christ. Christians never settle for obligation as a motivation to do anything. We should never just, well, we just serve God because we're obligated to do it. No, God has a greater glory for our lives than that. Rather, we draw from God's grace for our strength, for our understanding, and also for our faith. To understand our new identity that becomes our defining motivation for all of our obedience. And so today... As we look at the second sermon in this series called Making Bank, we're going to look at money and giving, the relationship of money and giving. And I want to leave you with this big idea that Christians glorify God and honor King Jesus when we understand that all of our giving is done as a response of worship to his love for us. All giving is a response of his worship to us. And that's the way we offer it to God. So I want to begin by addressing one question that often comes to mind. I know that because it's been brought to me, but it seldom crosses our lips. In other words, we don't say it, but we do think it. We say, well, pastor, if I'm going to have to give to the church, how much do others give? Well, I'm going to tell you how much others give this morning. Incidentally, before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little story about a pastor who was long tenured in the small town in which I grew up in. And he was famously known in that town among pastors as the one pastor in town who published quarterly a list of his church membership role and out next to him what they had given that quarter. Sent it to the whole church. Just keep everything authentic, right? Vulnerable. That's what we want to be. Not that authentic, not that vulnerable, right? That's not the who of what I'm telling you here in these statistics. I want to share and just kind of set the stage with you about this. Because even when you deal with a topic like giving, like money in the church, you immediately begin to deal with a funniness in the room, right? See, I told you. 
no jokes worked. Like, I'm not even going to tell a joke in this service because the first two, like, people were like, if he laugh, he's going to keep talking about it. Just be quiet. He'll stop. No, I won't. Here, here they are. Let me paint a picture for us. 17% of Americans state that they regularly tithe. Of those 17%, whatever the number is, 3 to 5% of those who give to their local church do so through regular tithing. That, that's not just 3 to 5 of the 17, but if you take the 17, 5% of whatever that total number is. In other words, that's not a pleasing or a, a good statistic is my point. Now, this is one that confronts some very common thinking in regards to giving in the church. Christian families that make less than $20,000 a year, it tells us, statistics tell us that 8% of them give at least 10% in their tithing, at least, if they make less than $20,000 a year. Now, when you jump from twenty dollars to $75,000, what do you think happens? I'm using the statistic, that's a clue, right? Statistics tell us that those who make $75,000 a year and more, the figure drops from 8% to 1% of those that practice tithing. The average American churchgoer gives $650 a year. The more money a person makes, statistics tell us, the less likely they are to tithe. One third of U.S. American Christians say it's impossible to get ahead in life because of the Stanley syndrome that we just saw. Debt, because of debt. 37% of people who attend church every week give no money to their church, like in a year's time, none. They say that there are 10 million tithers in the U.S. and collectively they donate about $50 billion a year. Friends, I don't even have a calculator that calculates numbers that big because I have absolutely no need for it, right? That seems like it's an overwhelming amount, but the total Christian income in the U.S. in one year is $5.2 trillion. That means that what is given represents less than 1% of what is held. Less than 1%. Now listen to this, because the colors of this, of this painting are about to get a little brighter, okay? 77% of those who tithe give 11 to 20%, far greater than just the 10%. 97% of Christians who tithe make it a top financial priority to give to their local church. And 7 out of 10 tithe on their gross income, not just their net income. I've been asked in my years as a pastor, Pastor, should I tithe on my gross or on my net income? And that's a genuine question. I think it's a great question, especially for people who have been new to the faith or just learning what the Bible teaches. And here's the answer that I give to them in all seriousness. Do you want God to bless you grossly or netly? Because our tithe and what we give is saying something to God, as we'll see in a moment. People are more likely to practice tithing when they begin the practice in their teens or early 20s. 
People who do not are much less likely to ever tithe. People who tithe regularly typically have less debt than any other demographic. Eight of 10, 80% rather, have zero credit card debt. And 28% of them are completely debt free, including their home mortgage. That's pretty, I mean, at the very least, those are highly respectable statistics, are they not? Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about those who are 35 and under, the millennials in the room, okay? Because I am known occasionally, I've even been accused of not liking millennials. Nothing could be further from the truth. I pick on you all the time. That's love, right? Listen, seriously, I want to talk specifically to those who are 35 and under in our church for just a moment. And I want you to know that I am, as I'm laboring for the entire church today, I am laboring for you to encourage you into something that you might not have been trained in. Most likely we're not trained in, statistically anyway, as you grew up. Statistics tell us that only three of 10 20-somethings, or what, what you might call millennials, donated to a church in the past year And that statistic is half of the portion of those who are older. While it's true that this younger generation typically gives less to the church than their older counterparts, it doesn't mean they will not give, nor does it mean that they want to give less. There are many factors that we'll see that determine this, but I'm laboring most of all for this ideology that millennials are checking out on the church and want nothing to do with it. I don't believe that. I believe we have a hopeful lens or or, uh, horizon for the younger generation in the church and in church leadership. But if we just buy into the bull that the world sells us about them, we'll cast a shadow over them that basically builds a barricade between them and the church. Can't do that, friends, can't do that. Let me explain why. First of all, what is said about the millennials could be said about every prior generation. You know how I know that? It was said about my generation. We Xers, right? We're Gen Xers. That's cool. That's a cool name. I'm a Gen Xer, right? And so so we kind of embrace what gets attached to these generational titles when the fact of the matter is just because you fit in that demographic doesn't mean you have to succumb to every statistic of that demographic. One of the reasons that young adults give less than older counterparts in the church today is because they haven't been doing it as long. They don't make as much. And stewardship is always an issue of discipleship. They're learning. So I want you to know I'm laboring for you today. I I want to encourage you in something you may have never heard before. You may have not been introduced to before. Statistics increasingly show that millennials want to give to something that they see is making an impact and not just going to waste. And if I'm honest with you, the church has been wasteful in some ways historically in the American church. We wasted more money on pacifying people's comforts than we have on sending the gospels to the end of the earth. And if we don't repent of that, then we will disengage the future generations for all the right reasons. They'll go and invest in something 
that will be giving to God's kingdom work. So young adults and students must learn to embrace the value of giving for themselves. What person at the age of 11, 12, 13, as they come in to those critical maturing years, and then even 18, 19, and 20 and beyond, what person in that range of age doesn't have to learn faith for themselves? There's a point in maturity at which they've got to learn that mama or daddy's faith is not going to be sufficient for their issues and problems. They're going to have to own it or they're not going to learn and mature in it. Why would, the difference, why would there be any difference in the issue of stewardship as well? And parents, I just want to challenge you. That's why it's so critical for you to teach this to your children. Teach them the joy of it from the earliest of ages so that it doesn't become a stumbling block any more than it already will be from the evil one. They must learn to embrace the value of giving and stewardship in all of life for themselves. Just like they must personally learn the value of faith in every area of life. And so when we embrace our new identity in Christ, we will live as stewards of the Lord Jesus. That's what we saw last week. That when we understand money and identity, we have answered the question, will I live as sovereign or will I live as a steward? We know we're not sovereign, but we try to pretend all day long. Because we don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But when we understand what he's done for us, we gladly submit so that we can bring glory to him in all of life. You see, stewards give to God as a response of faith to God's love with the treasure of our life. Just as we serve God with the talents and the abilities of our life, and as we rest in God through the Sabbath, of our life. You see, stewardship is a fully orbed life where all of me is given for all of him to bear a faithful testimony to all of them in the world. That's what stewardship's all about, friends. And honoring Jesus as Lord with our treasure begins by giving from his grace in response to his love for us. And so I want to address the question today, how then is it a Christian should view their responsibility in giving from a biblical perspective? Let me give you kind of an umbrella verse that captures the essence, the spirit of the answer to this question, and then we're going to hit the ground and I'm going to unpack it for us. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. You see, the Bible commands Christ followers to give not just as a law or an obligation rather, but to honor God with our wealth. So however it is that we practice giving in our life, which we'll discuss that more in just a moment, the way we give must honor God for it to be biblical and it must be biblical if it's going to honor God. Why? Because the Bible is God's revelation of how he's teaching us and leading us to honor him. Giving is first and foremost the Christian's most practical way of honoring God with that which is most honored in the world. Listen, friends, faithful stewardship will never make sense to people 
who do not confess Christ as Lord. And so when you live as a faithful steward, you proclaim a faithful testimony of his lordship, not only over your life, but for all the provisions and for all the protections, for all the pleasures and all the joys of life to say Christ is better in all things. And by God's grace, I hope and pray today is laboring to help you do that. There's really four primary passages in the New Testament that shape our understanding of how we give from God's grace. And I want to draw from these passages today to set down some principles for you to be able to assess and evaluate your own giving and let the Spirit of God use them to bring conviction in how God wants to use you. I, I, I would expect today that God would encourage you. I would expect today that God will challenge us. I would expect today that God will convict us by His Spirit and lead us in the way. Why? Because I would expect that in any sermon, any message. I can tell you this. God's already been working today in ways that have nothing to do with money. But he's been working in some ways that do have to do with it as well. And what I want us to see is I want us to, to learn from these passages that when a Christian draws from grace as their principal motivation for giving, the discipline of giving produces an increasing experience of God's grace in their life. You see, sometimes when we talk about grace, we like to keep it kind of in the uh, nebula, nebula land, right? Like, let's keep it in theory. But friends, grace is the most practical doctrine in all of Scripture. God's given you a handlebar to grab hold of in a very strategic way to experience his eternal presence in your heart and in your life. And if we don't bring it down to that level, we miss what God has for us. And so when I talk about the discipline of giving, yeah, it is a discipline. It is a discipline, but it's a discipline that produces an increasing experience of God's grace in our life. So let me look at these nine principles of grace-based giving. And because they're nine, I'm going to have to move kind of quickly. So I'm going to refer you to the passages. I want you to turn there and see them. You can come back and read them later, but we're going to look at those together. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. The first principle of giving to God based in his grace is the principle or is the systematic principle of giving or the principle of systematic giving. Verses one and two, let me read this for us. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. That last phrase reminds me, Paul didn't like to preach on money either. Shoot. I said I wasn't going to try a joke, and I did, and it, it's exactly what happened. I don't really think that. That was just a light in the moment. This principle of systematic giving is the first principle of drawing from God's grace in order to shape the way we give. And he tells us this, giving should be practiced on a regular basis. What do you mean by that? Well, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a bi-monthly basis, whatever the case may be. We live in a day and time when the economy is based on so many different 
kinds of economic uh, uh, provisions. Some people are paid hourly. Some people are paid weekly. Some people are paid monthly. Uh, some people are paid when the job gets done, whatever the case may be. And I don't think God's trying to drill it in so that everybody has to conform to one way. In a society in these days, the principal economy was driven in a, an agrarian society that was based off of agriculture, that was based off the crop, and the way that it cycled. So it was a little easier for people to see, but today, people's income is as different as uh, the number of people almost that there are. So it should really be based in two ways. The number of times that you gather, so we gather on a weekly basis. Consider it. That doesn't mean, listen to me, doesn't mean that you're always going to bring the same or an identical offering, but every time you prepare to come to worship with the church, you should consider God's provision for your life. Consider it. Why? Because the way that we offer our gifts, our giving to God, is a demonstration of what we believe about what he's done for us. One of the reasons we still pass the offering plate in this church is because the offering is not a response to the production or performance of the morning. The offering that's given in the church is a response to the work of God in each individual heart. Giving is an act of worship. And listen, I, I'm okay with, I know uh, many of you give online. I have no problem with that. I know some of you uh, put it in the receptacle on the wall before you leave instead of the offering plate. Have no problem with that. Text to give, all the electronic means. I have absolutely no problem with any of those. But there will always be a visible representation in our worship of receiving the offerings of the people. Why? Because I want God to see that our church is serious about bringing an offering to him, whatever form you may give it in. It's a reminder to us that we should come prepared in the way that we give to give to God. This first principle of giving also aligns with what Paul's identified, the biblical principles of first fruits. First fruits. What we give to God is not simply a portion of what we have, but rather as first fruits, it's the first of what we have from God and it is the best of what we have from God. This is representative of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. One of the greatest condemnations that Jesus leveled against the Pharisees in the New Testament is that they were selling second, third, and low-rate sacrificial animals to the people, and they were heaping condemnation on the people. That's what, that's what was taking place when Jesus cleaned the temple out, when he came in and overturned the tables, used whip to drive them all out. Why? Because Jesus was saying no more to the religious leaders who were selling the second-rate kind of animals, and obviously much worse than that as well, to the people, and not allowing them to give their best to God. Friends, I, I'm going to make a, an application to this to make a point. Yes, I'm emphasizing it, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. You can live off the last 90% of your income and still give a 10%. But if it's not the first 10%, what you're giving to God is not representing what God's done for you. 
if you're waiting to see what's left over is what I'm saying, and you give from the leftovers, instead of giving to God and saying, God, I, I know all the bills that have been set before me this week, this month, this year, whatever it may be, and I'm going to pay them, and then I'm going to make sure you get your due. It's not God's due. That's the point of first fruits. The point of first fruits is that God is worthy of our best, whether anybody else gets any or not. Because all of our provision comes from him. And it also says to him, you are our priority. Singular. You are our one priority, God. You will be honored in my life regardless of whatever else takes place. That's what it says when we give systematically to God. What and how we give to God must represent his worth to our life and him as the priority of our life. Now the second principle follows closely on this. It's the principle of proportional giving. The end of chapter, or the end of verse 2, 1 Corinthians 16 says this, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Right there, in keeping with his income is a critical understanding of how it is that God commands us to give. That's why I say it's in proportion to how you are compensated for the work that you do. God's not expecting you to give based off somebody else's compensation structure, Right? He, he's saying, how have I blessed you? And your giving should represent that in the way that you offer it. Also go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where we'll spend the remainder of our time. Verse 3 tells us again about the example of the Macedonians. It says, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So it begins by giving according to our ability. What is our ability? It's determined by what's been given. Now in our day and time, we have what we too often classify like old Stanley in the video as our ability because it's driving us deeper in the red. But listen, when we give out a debt, we're not giving out of faith. We're actually doing quite the opposite. What he's saying is as much as they were able. Verse 12 of that same chapter says, the gift is acceptable, listen to this, according to what one has. Your gift to God represents God's provision to you. That's all God wants. And this principle of drawing from his grace, of proportionate giving, simply demonstrates that. The problem is too often we don't want what God's given to us. We want what somebody else has or what he's given to somebody else. What we give to God should be proportional to how God has prospered us. You see, giving to God as an act of worship represents the treasure that God has bestowed into our care. That's stewardship. Now, I'll address it more, but allow me here just to say this as we begin to build this theology of stewardship in our church. That, that, that as I talked about last week with money and identity, First of all, we must rec uh, recognize that all that we have belongs to God. And, and this is right and true, and it sets our hearts and our minds on, on him. But what the scriptures teach us is that there is a portion of what we have that God has distinctively designated to represent himself. And that's what we're talking about in these first two principles. 
that, that it's, it's, uh, it's called the tithe. And that word simply just means a tenth. But the tithe is that first portion, that first 10% that represents the whole. So what the scriptures teach is that whatever that first 10% goes to is what the whole is representing the worth or value of. And what God says is that he ordains the first portion as distinctively his to represent that we are his. He ordains that portion to distinctively represent that all we have is from him. You you see, this principle of systematic proportionate giving is the first two principles of grace-based giving in our stewardship Because it says something about God. And we want to declare his praises and bear faithful testimony in every aspect of our life that he has given to us. It also says this, that God, whatever you give to me, not what I strive after, not what I try to grab for myself, whatever you give to me is sufficient for me. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned contentment, both when I had more than I could fathom and I didn't have anything near what I really absolutely needed to get by. But in both of those, the circumstances did not determine the contentment that God put in my heart. Have you learned contentment? You see, the Christian's stewardship is a testimony to God's provision. And when we are unfaithful in our stewardship, we testify that God's been unfaithful to us in his provision, in his pleasures, in his joy. But just as God is generous to us, so we also can reflect his nature and his character. For the third principle of giving by grace is the principle of sacrificial generosity. We talked about this last week with the Macedonians in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians. And it says this, out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave even beyond their ability. When Paul's speaking to the Philippians, and basically he's thanking them for the money they've given to him to support him in his ministry... Here's what he says in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4. I have received the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering. You know what that means? Smells good. There's an aroma in the room that is blessing to all because of what you've done. They're not only a fragrant offering, they're an acceptable sacrifice. God has looked upon them and he's found joy and pleasure in them. They have pleased God. God. You see, faith empowers Christians to give not only what we can afford to give, but beyond our own ability. Even the bottom line of our own bank account or our own treasure. Because when God leads us to give, he demonstrates to us what he wants to do in us so he can accomplish his will through us. And that's where we have to learn to live by faith. Because God calls us to things that the ledger of our own books don't balance to. Will we follow him 
or not. Money is never the issue for God. Faith is always the issue. When we give only out of our own management, we remove our need for God. God, this is what I'm able to do. God does want you to measure. He wants you to look at your checkbook or ledger. I don't even know how to refer to it anymore because the whole demographic that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon is like, checkbook? What's that? God wants us to look at our ability and to measure up what we're able to do. But listen to me, friends. God will never leave us within our own ability in any area of life. And that's true in finances as well. He wants to lead us to trust him, to step out in faith and to follow him so that he can do more through us and in us than we could do ourselves. When we practice sacrificial generosity, we say to God, not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will be done in this area of my life. Thy will be done in this situation in my life. Thy will be done in this sacrifice of my life. The fourth principle is the principle of intentional giving. It's interesting with the horrific description that Paul gives of the Macedonians, that their circumstances that were beyond even considering and their poverty that was so deep, no one would have considered to ask them to help out, you know? It said this, instead, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. It was the Macedonians who were so overflowing with the joy of Christ within them that said, whoa, 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 whoa. You will not walk out of here until you receive the offering that we've taken for you. And if you do, we will find you and we will make sure it gets to you. That's what they did. That's what they did. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Philippians, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. You would not forget the work of God that he had done and you would not forsake the work of God that he was doing, not only in you, but in someone else. For the work that God had done produced an overflowing of giftedness and of giving to make sure that others experienced what you had experienced through the preaching of the gospel. That's what he's talking about in Philippians 4. See, faithfulness and stewardship never happens by accident. I'm going to throw out a cliche warning here. I'm not much on cliches, but sometimes they serve us well. When we fail to plan in our giving, we plan to fail in our obedience. Plain and simple, friends. Faithful stewardship is the regular practice of counting the cost of following Jesus, to say no to the world so we can say yes to him in ever-increasing ways and ever-deepening means. The fifth principle is the principle of our giving being motivated by love, by equality, and by blessing. We see this in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
2 Corinthians 8, 13, he says, Our desire is not that others may be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 9 to say this, Remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God, he's the supplier, will also supply and increase your store of seed, and listen to this, will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You know what Paul's telling you there? That God takes the tangible nature of our dollars, of the focus of our economic activity in this world, and he uses it to increase the righteousness within us. In other words, God takes the tangible temporal elements of this world and we when we steward them in such a way to bring honor and glory to him he turns them into eternal glory and value for us that cannot be calculated by this world that's what he means when he says the harvest of righteousness God takes our dollars and he turns them into godliness when we steward them to bring honor and glory to him That's not for me, friends. That's what Paul said. That's what the word of God teaches us. We have to ask, are our dollars making us more righteous because of the way we're honoring God through them? When you consider why you give, it should never return just to yourself, but first of all to God and even to other people. When we give out of a motivation of love, you see, we want other people to experience love so that we have the opportunity to point them to God's love. We give so people can be loved. We want people to experience this aspect of equality. In other words, when a need arises in their life, here's what I believe in the local church, that the reason needs are present is because God's already working in someone else to address that need. I never believe that a need doesn't come up in the life of our church, that God's not already working in someone else or some others else where he's not going to meet that need God doesn't leave our needs unmet and when a need comes up listen we're just waiting for the person that God's using to address that need and sometimes it's individuals but usually it's the fellowship it's the church God wants to powerfully work among his people to see radical life change and to see really raw, real life change. That's why, friends, listen, that's why, that's why when you see a need, you most likely are not seeing it like everyone else. When you see a need that stirs your heart, that is the stirring of the Spirit of God within you that says you may not be able to remove this need, but you can at least address it. Apply the principles of God's grace and the way that he has given to you so that you can share that grace for equality among the people of God. He doesn't want it to be a burden to you, but what looks like a burden, the cross of Jesus Christ, became the greatest glory that was ever known to people. Friends, I, I could sit here and tell you all day stories that I've experienced as a pastor when people come to me and simply say, Pastor, I have no idea how this is going to happen. And in the back of my mind, I'm immediately going, 
God, I have no idea how that's going to take place. But here's what I've learned in my years of pastoring. Don't dwell there because when you hear that I have no idea how, immediately the Spirit always says, watch for God to show up here. A need that arises, sometimes that's so simple, you would go, why would that need even come up? Oh, God's going to meet the simplest of need in a miraculous way. And sometimes you go, how could that need ever be addressed? God's going to do something that only God can do. Don't ever remove or dismiss needs among our people. Because God's motivating people to show love, to demonstrate equality, and to live as God has blessed us to be a blessing. God never grows your treasure just so you can make a bigger imprint and footprint in this world, friends. God grows our treasure so we can demonstrate a greater treasure through our stewardship of who he is in our life. Stewards honored God when we give to demonstrate love and equality towards others to be a blessing. Friends, sometimes that's money and sometimes that's just stuff. And I can't tell you how many times people in our church have said, well, I've got an extra room. They can live here. They can stay here. I've got this. Why don't they just go use it? Here's a car. I'll give it to them until they can have their own. I mean, over and over and over again. And sometimes you go, yeah, we were just able to do that. Yeah, you were. You know what? That's why God says they considered what they were able to do. And then they even gave beyond their ability. You see, just because God made us able to do it doesn't mean we should dismiss it. It means that we should do it in such a way that God gets glory for it. But we should never let that be the final limit of what God wants to do through us. Because it's not the determination of what he wants to do in us. The sixth principle is the principle of giving cheerfully. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9 says, Each man should give not reluctantly, for God loves a cheerful giver. Proverbs 22.8 tells us the same thing. God loves a cheerful and generous person. Cheerfulness will likely not be the first result of giving. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I don't feel any cheer today. I don't guess I have to give to that. Sorry. Obviously, God has somebody else for you. No, it won't be the first result of giving, but it will be the most rewarding. And so often I learned this is where the discipline comes in, right? I loathe the thought of working out. I just don't like it. I'll go outside and be busy all day in the yard, but you know, physical exercise for the good of my physique and for the good of my physical specimen, I use that term very lightly, very, very lightly. I, I just loathe the idea of it. Work hard all day, don't let me know it's working out. But let me tell you something, I love what it produces when I practice the discipline of it. And I loathe what it creates when I don't. You see, it's the same way with giving. It, it produces something in us where in the inner recesses of our heart, we say yes to God because we see 
how God came through and was faithful. When our giving brings genuine joy from God, we can be assured that our treasure is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. The seventh principle is that we give voluntarily. Verse seven, again, we just used this one. Each man should give what he has decided in his own heart to give. Not reluctantly, nor under compulsion. Listen, friends, as a direct teaching and command of Scripture, God says he, he doesn't want you to do this under compulsion or reluctantly. He wants you to give voluntarily. Why? Because what you do out of obligation is done, finished, period, at the end. There's nothing else. When you fulfilled your obligation, you were obligated to do it. So in doing it, all you did is fulfill something. It's canceled. But when you give voluntarily, there wasn't any reason you had to give. There wasn't anything that said to you, you must give. You just gave. And when you do that, man, you take the ledger and you set it before God. And you said this, God, I'm going to let you take care of the accounting of this because I just want to give. And I'm going to trust that however you bring it back to me, if you do, or if you choose just to take it from me, it'll be better than if I had it on my own. God works in us to lead us to give voluntarily. Why? So he can bless us more. But if you don't trust God, if you don't know him enough to really believe that, you won't ever practice that. And you won't ever experience the blessing of what he wants to bestow on you. He works in us to lead us to give voluntarily so he can fill us with more of his presence and power through Christ. The eighth principle is that we would excel in giving. No, you, you never hear this. Well, let me read the passage first. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. Just as you excel in everything, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. How many times do you hear us championing, Oh, little Johnny just finished first grade for the sixth time. He's going to try again next year. We don't celebrate that. Mama and daddy don't even celebrate that. I mean, you know, that's one of those things that a mama has trouble loving. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, and when mama's having trouble loving, it's bad, right? But that's kind of how it is. What Paul is saying is that, that, listen, in our relationship with Christ, as it grows, so should our giving to him because things that are alive grow. And when Christ is alive in us and what we do and how we live demonstrates that life in us, we should excel. We're going to excel in our life in many ways. One of the reasons that the older generation gives more than the younger generation is because the vast majority of them make more than the younger generation do. There's no shame in that. Again, I go back to the widow's might. It wasn't even about the amount, friends. It was about the posture of the heart in the offering. We say, God, you know what? I want more of your righteousness in me. I want to excel in this. Teach me how to go where I will not, have not, and even cannot go on my own. Help me excel in the area of giving. You see, in all, friends, our love for Jesus motivates our giving. We cannot make Jesus love us more or love us less through our giving. But we do come to love him more as we practice giving more to him. And I'm going to tell you what, 
you can test me on this. I may be wrong. I don't think I am. When you reject the discipline of giving and the opportunity to give, you'll find in your heart you have more problems with the commands of God. Why? You just don't trust him as much. I guarantee it. And without following these principles, it's very unlikely you'll ever honor God with your wealth. You might give some to his work. But listen, when you give to God out of the wrong heart and the wrong spirit, when you're trusting in your own abilities alone to give to God, even what you give will heap condemnation upon your heart. When we fail to honor God with our wealth through grace-based giving, we rob God of something far greater than money. We rob him of glory. Glory that is his and his alone. Now in the Old Testament, Malachi records that God commands us to bring all the tithe into the storehouse and to test God to see if he will not be more faithful than we could imagine. So often when I hear the banter against uh, how we should give and shouldn't give and why tithe isn't a command and Christians today don't have to follow it and all of this kind of nonsense... I just simply want to say this. God's promise in giving is not limited to the Old Testament. It builds on it. For God's promises in the New Testament is just simply a reminder of his challenge in the Old Testament. This last principle is that we give based on the principle of the promise of grace-based giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verses 8 and 9. This is why I say grace is the most practical doctrine that we could imagine. All And God is able, it says, to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things at all time, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You can bank on that, friends. There will never be a moment when you put your life into God's hands that God's grace will prove insufficient for you. He may not walk the path that you wanted to walk. He may not bring the return that you hoped for. But what he brings and the way that he delivers it will never disappoint Philippians 4.19, Paul goes on to say, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This whole series is intended to move us beyond obligation to grace in our giving. Tithing as a law of giving really just represents obligation to God. You see, when people start arguing about the tithe, you look at their arguments and what you're going to find is it's based out of an obligation to God so often. But when we're motivated by grace, we give out of gratitude and we give out of faith. When we consume our lives with Jesus, we can only seek to live towards giving more of ourselves to him. And that includes our money. Adrian Rogers, one of the greatest orators and preachers of this last generation says this, if your gift means little to you, your gift means little to God. What does your giving say about the God who it is given to? 
Let's pray.